have you ever had a time in your life when you were wild and rebellious? A time when you were out for all you could get? A time when you made uh, a load of really bad choices, foolish, selfish choices? A time when you were far away from God, perhaps willfully, perhaps without even realizing it? I wonder whether anyone can relate to that. Or maybe you can't. Maybe you've not been through that rebellious stage. You might be a person who has always tried to do the right thing, uh, who has always conformed. Uh, maybe there have been times when you've done the right thing, but secretly you wanted to do the opposite. I wonder whether anyone can relate to that. Well, either way, whether you've rebelled at some stage in your life or whether you've always tried to do the right thing, this parable is for you. It's often called the parable of the prodigal son, but it's not a very apt title. The word prodigal means wasteful. And whilst the younger son in the parable is undoubtedly wasteful, he squanders his father's wealth and and worth still his love, uh, it's really more to do with him being lost. But it's not just the younger son who is lost. There are two sons in this parable, and they're both lost in different ways. So perhaps this ought to be called the parable of the lost sons, and uh, that's our theme this morning. And the reason we included verses 1 and 2 is that they reveal to us who these two sons in the parable represent. Let me read those verses again. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The younger son, the prodigal son, represents the tax collectors and the sinners. And the older son represents the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So let's keep that in mind uh, as we go through. And actually, Jesus responds to the criticism of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law with three parables. And they're all found here in chapter 15. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son, or the lost sons, as we're calling it. And it's this last one that's the most in-depth, so that's why we're focusing on it this morning. Uh, But to understand it properly, we need to understand something of first-century Middle Eastern culture. So when a father died, his property would pass to his sons, and the eldest son would would get a double portion, and uh, the remaining sons would all get an equal share. So in this case, there are two sons... The elder son would, get, would receive two-thirds, and the younger son would receive a third. So this younger son has asked for his inheritance. Uh, and you would only ever get your inheritance when your father had died. So the younger son is, is effectively saying that he wishes his father were dead. He's basically saying, my relationship with you has just been a means to an end. But I've had enough. Just give me the money. That's shocking enough for us, but it would be even more shocking in that culture. Unthinkable. And there's only one way that a a Middle Eastern father would have responded to this. Uh, The son would most likely have been beaten, thrown out of the family home, uh, disinherited and disowned. But amazingly, this father complies with his son's outrageous demand. And it's not like the father would have just given him a big bag of cash. Uh, he would have given him the land 
And then the son would have had to sell the land to get the cash. And that would bring double shame on the family because the people were very connected to the land. Uh, a strong sense of identity they would get from, from, from the land. You would never just uh, sell off your family inheritance like that. So to Jesus' audience... Uh, this story was appalling on all kinds of levels, and the younger son hasn't even left home yet. But Jesus wants his hearers to know that not only is God a father, but also what kind of a father he is. Jesus always referred to God as father. There's only one occasion when he didn't, and that was when he was nailed to a cross, separated from the love of the Father for our sakes. Uh, But the image of a father is not always helpful because there are different kinds of father, and the word means different things to different people. So if your father was kind and caring and loving and dependable, then you have some sort of an idea of what we mean when we say that God is our father. Uh, But if your father was distant, detached, volatile, abusive, controlling, or absent, uh, then it might be difficult to make a positive connection with the word father. Just as today, many people in the Middle East in the first century would have had fathers who were austere, distant, and authoritarian. So Jesus begins to build up this vivid picture of what our heavenly father is like. Jesus is saying that God is our father and his goodness is infinitely greater than that of any earthly father that we could imagine or experience. And what's happening here is that the father's love is being blatantly rejected by the younger son. I wonder whether your love has ever been rejected. I think probably most of us have experienced that at some point. How did it feel? How did you respond? Because I think uh, a fairly normal human reaction would be anger and retaliation, but we don't see any of that from the father in this parable. To this son, who's already brought so much shame on his father, he travels to a distant land, out of sight of everyone who knows him and anyone that will hold him to account, and he lives it up. He spends the money on wine and women and clothes and uh, parties and all the rest of it. You know, there is pleasure and excitement in sin. I'm not trying to encourage you to sin, but that's a reality, isn't it? But it's only ever for a time. It's only ever for a season. It will eventually come to an end, and you'll be left feeling empty, soulless, and desperately unhappy. You'll be left feeling lost like the younger son in this parable. I'm sure that many of us have experienced that. I know I have. So for this young man, his money runs out. His so-called friends vanish. He's left destitute, and he finds a job feeding pigs. And as you know, it was shameful for Jews to have anything to do with pigs. And he's so hungry that he longs to eat what the pigs are eating, but no one will give him anything. He can't fail to recognize that he's in a dire situation. He knows that he's lost. Actually, he was lost uh, from the moment that he conceived the idea of getting his inheritance while his father was still living. He was lost then. He just didn't realize it. But now he does. He knows that he's lost. 
But it's a sad fact that many of us don't realize that we're lost until our life hits crisis point. And even then, some people are unable to see it or unwilling to admit it. But this young man, he realizes he's lost and he, can't, he comes up with a scheme for his own restitution. He thinks, well, I'll return home to my father, but not as his uh, son, as a, as a servant. You see, he thinks if he works hard, he can somehow begin to pay off this huge debt that he's amassed. He, he feels that he can somehow right the wrong, redress the balance. He, he feels that he's got to do something to make amends for the way that he's behaved. And with this in mind, he returns to his father. But, but notice the reaction of the father. Verse 20 says, But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And I, if you put up the slide, I love this sculpture by Charlie Mackesy. I think it beautifully captures that moment where the father embraces his son. You know, in that culture, important men who, who were senior members of the household would never run. They would not run. It was considered uh, undignified. It was considered degrading and demeaning for an important man in that culture to run. And let, yet this father goes running out to meet this son who has brought so much shame on the family. You see the picture of the father's love that Jesus is building. He puts his arms around his son and he kisses him before he can even say a word. You see... The Father's love, God's love, is unconditional. It is always God who comes to meet us and overwhelms us with his love. And here the son begins to say he's sorry. I can only imagine that he's weeping. And he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this is probably the moment where he would have said, just let me work as a hired hand. Let me do something to pay off the debt, but he doesn't get the chance to say that. Such is the father's joy at having his son return home. The father immediately restores him to a place of honor. So such love and grace, such compassion and forgiveness. That is what our father in heaven is like. We are saved from death and hell, and we are brought back into a right relationship with God as a pure act of grace on God's part. We can do nothing to contribute. Uh, We do not have to earn our way back to the Father. In fact, it's quite impossible for us to do so. And again, I think this sculpture beautifully portrays the helplessness of us as human beings. The helplessness of that son, his limp arm just hanging to the side. And though the father in this parable, he didn't go out in search of his son. He didn't leave home. He kind of gave his son the freedom to go and do his thing. But we have to read this parable in the light of the two preceding parables. They, they come as a, a package, if you like. So the parable of the, lost, of the lost sheep, where the shepherd goes in search of that one lost sheep. The shepherd, of course, being Jesus. And then the parable of the lost coin, where the woman searches high and low all over the house for that one lost coin. 
Coins are inanimate objects. If they get lost, there's nothing that they can do to facilitate their being found. And some have suggested that the woman in that parable represents the Holy Spirit who acts upon hopeless and helpless human hearts, who acts upon people who can do nothing to save themselves. And then this final parable in the trio, the one that we're looking at today, of course, the Father represents God the Father. So the three parables together give us a much better idea of what is happening when lost human beings are found by God. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that the three parables together say something about the work of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's half the story. That's one of the lost sons, uh, the one who rebels against his father, travels to a distant land, things go horribly wrong for him, he repents, he comes to his senses, he goes home with a contrite heart, and he's reconciled to his father. It's uh, like verses 11 to 27 are Act 1, if we, we can put it that way. And then we have Act 2, which is verses 28 to 32. And the shift, uh, sorry, the focus shifts from the younger son to the elder son. The uh, younger brother's sins are obvious. Callous greed, prostitutes, wild living, it's all there on display. And Jesus was surrounded by people whose sins were obvious. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they couldn't hide what they were doing. They couldn't hide the way they were living. But through Jesus, they were experiencing the extravagant love of God. They were repenting, and their lives were being completely transformed. And that, of course, is still happening all over the world today. By contrast, the older brother appears to be morally upright, He stays at home and works for his father. He does the right thing. At first glance, he looks like the good guy, much like the Pharisees. He even says as much in verse 29. He says, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Isn't that exactly what the Pharisees would have said? We've obeyed God. We've kept the law. We've remained pure. We've done the right thing. So the older brother feels like he's earned his dues. And on this particular occasion, he returns home and he finds this huge party going on uh, because his younger brother has returned, this celebration. And his brother is wearing his father's robe and his ring and they killed the fatted calf. That was a big deal, by the way. Meat was only every and on special occasions and the fatted calf would be saved for the most special occasions. And uh, anyone who understands anything about sibling rivalry will understand something of the older brother's indignation. But he gives his game away, and he reveals what his true motives are, when he effectively says, what have you ever given me? What have you ever given me? Verse 29, he says, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. So for the older brother too... His father was just a means to an end. He didn't want his father. He's not interested in this wonderful, loving relationship that he can have with his father. He just wants his property. The younger brother sought what he, to, to, the younger brother sought to get what he wanted by rebelling. The older brother sought to get what he wanted by towing the line, by conforming. 
So now he's thinking, well, why did I put in all this effort? This younger brother of mine, he's not lifted a finger, and look what he's got. And the Pharisees had the same kind of attitude. They felt like they'd earned God's blessings. And we sometimes, you know, we some, um, they felt like they'd earned God's blessings, and they looked down on anyone who, in their view, hadn't. And, of course, they were angered at the idea of God pouring out his blessings on undeserving sinners, which is, of course, exactly what God does. That's the whole uh, message of the gospel. This idea of blessing being a reward for goodness is misguided and dangerous. But sadly, we sometimes find this attitude among Christians. I've lived a good life. I've done everything the right way. Therefore, God owes me a good life. There are two principal dangers of thinking like this. Firstly, as soon as we think that we've done everything right, we create two categories of people. We create the good, the group of people to whom we feel that we belong, and the bad. But Jesus and the New Testament in general never draws a dividing line between good people and bad people. The line is drawn between humble people and proud people, people who can admit that they're sinful, that they've done wrong, that they need God's help, that they need God's forgiveness, and people who cannot or will not acknowledge that, who will not turn back to God and look to God for help. The second danger to thinking that we deserve God's blessings is that we'll probably spend our whole lives angry like the older brother. Uh, Because we'll see others, people who in our eyes are less deserving, get in all the things that we think God owes us. If we think we have earned God's blessings by being righteous, by being good, then we're just as lost as the person whose sins are much more obvious, are out there on display. And we see this very clearly with the older brother. The younger brother deliberately separated himself from the father, but so too does the older brother. We see that the older brother refused to go in. He refused to join in the celebration. Imagine someone snubbing a family member by not going to their wedding. Well, for the older, sorry, for the father to have killed the fatted calf, and then for the older brother to refuse to go in and join the celebration, that was like the ultimate snub. It's like the ultimate slap in the face to his father. And again, it's the father who goes out to the son this time to the older son. This situation would have been highly embarrassing and shameful for any father in that culture. But look at the way the son addresses his father. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. It's not a very respectful tone, is it? Especially the way it starts. Look, that could just as easily be translated, hey you, hey you. It was unthinkable in that culture that anyone would address their father like that. So we see that the eldest son is actually rejecting his father. He's treating him with the utmost disdain. He's pushing him away. And the father responds with nothing but love. He says, my son, my son, 
You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Both sons were lost in their own way, just like every human being. In Act 1, the younger son deliberately separates himself from the father. He goes to a distant land. He squanders the money. Eventually, he, he hits rock bottom. He comes to his senses. He goes home. He's repentant. He's reconciled to the father. Their relationship is restored. And that is a possibility for every human being. In Act 2, the elder son refuses to share in his father's joy at the homecoming of his younger brother. And so he too deliberately separates himself. But Jesus leaves this as a cliffhanger because we don't get to find out whether the, young, whether the older brother sorry, was eventually reconciled to his father. He could have been because God wants to be reconciled. He wants that relationship restored with every human being. But of course, that older brother can continue to reject God if he wants to. And then the relationship cannot be restored. At the beginning, I called this the parable of the lost sons. And it's a pretty good title. But the more that we study this, the more we realize that this is actually all about the father. In fact, some have suggested, I think it was Henry Nguyen who said that it should be called the parable of the running father. It's about a father who will endure scorn, shame, and rejection, but keeps on loving nonetheless. A father who takes the initiative and goes out to both his sons. A father who is willing to forgive at the first sign of repentance and rejoices when his children come home. So there are two things that we might need to repent of this morning. We might have wandered off to a distant land. We might have ignored the will of our Father. We may have rejected God's love. If that's us, then maybe now is the time to come home, to come home to a loving Father who has created us and wants the very best for us and wants us to know him and wants us to know the real reason that we're alive, the purpose that he has for our lives. Maybe now is the time we come home to that father. Or we might need to repent of our motives. Maybe we've been doing the right things because of what we hope to get in return. We've been good because we want to be blessed. Well, if that's the case, then let's leave that behind us today. Instead of obeying God to get things, let's obey God to get God and the wonderful relationship that he offers us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we recognize all of us here, every one of us has rebelled against you in different ways. All of us here have done things with the wrong motives. All of us here have done right things, but with the wrong motives. All of us have been like the prodigal son, the younger brother, and at times all of us have been like the older brother. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will 
truly repent, that we'll recognize what we have in you, that we'll recognize that life without you is literally wallowing around in the pigs with the pigs. We pray, Father, that we'll see the contrast, the son who came home and was given a place of honor and was reconciled to his father. We pray, Father, that we recognize that we are made for you and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. Fill us with your spirit and help us to grasp something of your love for us and to respond to that today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.